Hi, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today our guest is noted mathematician and author of The Outer Limits of Reason, Dr. Nussan S. Yanofsky. Join us as we discuss the astonishing complexities in mathematics and computer science and the mysterious paradoxes in logical reasoning. Let's begin. Hello, Nassan. Welcome to Making Sense of Complexity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward towards this. This is uh, very interesting. Oh, good. And uh, so where are you calling in from today? I am from Brooklyn, New York, not New York City, but Brooklyn, New York, which is part of New York City technically, but really Brooklyn is a, a separate um, place in the universe. Yeah, it's and, on, yeah. Um, we're, uh, we're enjoying a beautiful Friday morning. It's actually sunny and, and, and pleasant. So it's a February in New York. It's not it's that cold and chilly right. uh, no, experience. No, no, no. We only had one cold day this winter, but uh, we're, we're, we're doing good this winter. Anyways. Well, good. Well, thanks for joining me on a nice day. I've got you stuck inside instead of outside in the in the sun. But um, let's start with uh, just uh, you are, uh, in my view, a remarkable mathematician and logician. Uh, you've done a lot of a lot of great work, interesting work, and a wonderful book. We'll talk about a little bit uh, as we go. Um, and what drew you into this field? What got you going? Um... Well, so I was a teenage computer geek uh, a long time ago and was obsessed with computers and really liked them. And I was a computer major as an undergraduate. And but by the time I was in middle of college, I was kind of like bored of it already or maybe I burnt out or something and I wanted a little bit more. So I got into computers, I was into mathematics. And so I kind of left uh, computers. I went to mathematics and I got a graduate degree in computers and then started teaching. And I went back to teaching in the computer department, but I kept my head in, in mathematics and, and stuff like that. And then I got into quantum computers, which is a little bit about um, computers and quantum physics and the weirdness of using the weirdness of quantum physics to understand that. And I wrote a book. And in all of these three areas, computers, uh, mathematics, and physics, I was uh, brushing up against unknowables, things that we can't know. And I was seeing common patterns. And I, um, I wrote this, uh, this book, which has been selling very well. It's called The Outer Limits of Reason. What yeah. science, oh, there we have it. What science, <laughs> mathematics, and logic cannot tell us, and it tries to bring together all these different aspects of of what human beings cannot do, mm -hmm. and what they'll never be able to do. So, mm -hmm. I thought that was, um, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, and I uh, that's exactly what fascinated me. Uh, I was interested in math and logic and science back in college and then and then ran into some of those uh, paradoxes that you talk about in the book and it just the paradoxes have interested me but the kind of the nuts and bolts the kind of mathematics you do and logical thinking is really really difficult stuff um, and so i i ended up shying away from that difficult but 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 what it is is it's diverse it's in all three of these fields and, yeah 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 well, that's great. Thank you. I, so let's start with um, one of the areas that I think of as sort of uh, mathematical complexity, that some problems can seem pretty simple, but as you add the number of things or the numbers get larger, it becomes really, really, really difficult. And I wonder if you could just um, maybe talk a little bit about about that and, and where that uh, kind of questioning goes. Right. So, right. So, so there are a lot of problems. Well, so this is an interesting thing. You spend your entire life learning what computers can do and computers can do pretty amazing things. No, it's not. Um, 
So computers can do amazing things, but we all know that there are many things a computer can't do or we can't do. So we can't tell what tomorrow's lottery numbers are. And we have a hard time telling what next week's Wall Street numbers will be. And, you know, what the weather will be in, in five days is, is pretty much beyond us. All these problems come from complexity. In other words, the amount of information that has to be churned out or worked worked out can't be done by computers nowadays or and actually will never be done to tell you the truth and and maybe i'll explain that later um and so these problems are there are answers to these questions tomorrow's lottery numbers there you know it's an objective question um tomorrow's next week's wall street numbers that's an objective question which i would like to know the answers to now and you know the weather these are objective questions but there's no way in the world we're going to get a computer to to give the answers now uh, computer scientists have studied a lot of these and i i think the simplest problem was something like um the something called the the traveling salesman problem traveling salesperson problem to be more exact Anyways, so the traveling salesman problem is a sim- easy to state. Let's say you have you're a salesman and you're trying to go from city to city to sell your sales, to sell your stuff. And let's say you want to go to seven different cities, and you want to fly from one city to another exactly once. You never want to go to a city more than once. Stay stay at each city three days or four days and sell your widgets that you're selling, and then you want to come home. And so. You want to do this in the shortest amount of time, distance. In other words, you don't want to go to one city far away and then come back and then have to go to another city. So you want to do it in the shortest amount of distance to go through all seven cities exactly once. Okay? And that's not hard to program. You can do that and and write out a program. And basically what you do is you try all different permutations of the cities. In other words, should you go here, there first, and then there, and then there, and then there, or should you go here first, and then there, and then there, and then there, and you try all possibilities. Now, question, how many possibilities are there? So for seven cities, it's not hard to calculate. It's basically, you have seven possibilities for the first city, and then you have six possibilities for the second city, because you already saw the first city, and then you have five possibilities for the next city, and then you have four, three, two, one. So it's seven times six times five times four times three times two times one, and that's five thousand and forty. Mm-hmm. And that's known as a factorial, seven factorial that's in mathematical factorial. jargon. So right. that's not bad, right? That's not bad. Five thousand and forty yeah. is not bad at all. And it turns out. Oh, so let's just go through it. For each one of these permutations, for each one of these, you have to go through and see how how long of a distance it is. So you have to add up seven numbers and uh, then ca- compare it to the other numbers that you're calculating. And you're looking for the smallest of those added up numbers. Okay, so it's 5,040. Your computer that you're talking to me on um, can do about a million in a second can check a million in a second about and so it would take microseconds for you to find the answers okay and that's for seven cities that's fine how about for 10 cities well that's a little bit more difficult but still doable it's going to be 10 factorial which is 10 times 9 times 8 times 7 times 2 times 1 okay because there are 10 cities that you can try first and then nine cities and then eight cities and that turns out to be something like 3 million um, something, 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 okay? Which, again, if your computer can check a million routes, you know, so we're looking at different possible routes of the of this traveling salesman. If yours can do a million in a second, so 3 million will take 3 million, 3 seconds. Not hard at all, okay? Question is as follows. Let's say you're really a great traveling salesman and you want to go to a hundred cities. How long will that take for the computer to calculate? Okay, so it's not a strange question. It's not an obscure thing that, you know, weird uh, professors in Ivy League colleges talk about. Because if you think about it, um, you're a traveling salesman. You want to travel 300 days a year. You want to go to the 
100 most populous cities in the United States, you want to spend three days at each city, that's, you know, that's a, that's a year. That's a nice, uh, that's a nice job. And you just want to do it in the shortest possible route. So it's not hard. So we sit down and we calculate and we get 100 times 99 times 98 times 97. We're calculating 100 factorial. And it turns out, and usually I let people guess at how long this will take, but since you read the book, so I, I'm not going to let you guess, but it will let the listener just think about, take a, take a wild guess at how long it takes. And it turns out that it'll take something like uh, 1.59 times 10 to the 142 centuries for you to come up with the right answer. And that's simply an amazingly large number. Okay, so it's 1.42 with, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1.59 with 100, uh, with a 159 with 142 numbers afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's bigger than the number Google for anyone that knows That's what a Google bigger is. Than the number yeah. of Google and it's yeah. bigger. And we're just asking for 100 cities. We could have asked for 300 cities or something like that. Yeah. We'll get numbers that are just. Yeah. wildly astronomical. So that's an example of a problem that is, is practically becomes practically impossible. Right. And at a certain point, if you went to a 1000 cities, or you're trying to connect points, you're trying to look at some, some immune system thing that has hundreds and 1000s of things, and you're trying to do calculations, it's, it's practically impossible to be able to do that right. in a finite amount of time, right? You can write a program for it. And the program won't even be that long, and you can you can it, it you can start running it, um, and it will you know it's not hard to do that, and it's easy to run this program. It just it's just going to take too long to find the exact answer. Mm -hmm. Now there's ways of trying to get around with it and say, okay, I don't want the exact answer. I want somewhat of an exact answer. Close enough. Yes. Close enough. And, and we can do that and we can do that in a normal amount of time. And that's, that's, that's yeah. a good, you know, and that's what and, businesses do. Right. And that's what your GPS is doing when you ask for a route, right? It's not, it's not looking at the permutation of every single road you could travel on. It's just taking some shortcuts and doing a hack and, and giving you a, a good enough answer. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, and so that's, the GPS is actually a little bit better, but you know, ways you're right. But, but, but right. So a lot of times we can get an almost good answer and that's fine for most people and it's fine for most businesses, but just theoretically what's wrong, what's going on here. And I, I would just like to explain why this number is so humongous, why it takes so long. Mm -hmm. And the idea is take any number, multiply it by 10 and you're going to add a digit to them. Right. Multiply it by 100, and you're going to add two digits to the number. Well, basically, take 100, uh, take 99, multiply it by 100, you're adding two digits. Um, multiply it by 98, you're almost adding two digits. 97, you're almost adding. So most of the time, I mean, you have these are two-digit numbers. You know, think of the numbers from 1 to 100. Mm -hmm. 90 of them are two-digit numbers. And so you're multiplying by two digit numbers. And basically every time you're doing that, you're adding another digit. So mm -hmm. you get a humongous amount. Yeah, yeah. So the practical side of it uh, is easy to understand. You just explained it really well. Um, but sort of, is there a theoretical side of this? Like, uh, yeah, problems, problems that are pragmatically impossible, but, you know, are there things, you know, that, you know, what does this lead you to in terms of the, the impossibility of certain problems to be to be solved in a finite amount of time. Right. So, um, well, so practically it's impossible. I mean, just the 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 amount. Uh, so the the universe will be in a heat death, you know, before the answer will come up. Um, Ten to the hundred and forty two centuries is longer than the universe ever existed and longer than the universe ever will exist. So it's not, it's not even, it's not even there. Now, I just want to say a lot of people, when I present this, they say, oh, it's okay. You know, we're going to get faster computers and we're going to be able to solve this in a faster amount of time. Okay. So that's a, a typical answer. And 
you know, you're of a certain age, I'm of a certain age, where you can see this, you understand this. Um, so, for example, a computer that you had on your desk 30 years ago is 10,000 times slower than the computer that you're using now. Okay, mm -hmm. so you might say, look, I'm going to wait 10,000 years, uh, 10, 10, uh, 30 years, and I'm going to get another computer that's going to get 10,000 times faster than this computer. And that's, that's a legitimate answer. And it will save you time. Okay. But when you're dealing with these giant numbers, if you're looking at, let's say, 10 to the 142 centuries, and you say, you know what, I want to do this 10,000 times faster, which means I'm basically taking 10 to the 142 centuries and dividing by 10,000. Okay, so one ten thousandth of 142 centuries. It turns out that you just subtract four from the exponents. So it becomes mm -hmm. 10 to the 138 centuries. You know, so even if you wait 30 years and you get another computer that works 10,000 times faster, oh, then you only have to wait, wait 10 to the 138 centuries, which is absolutely mine. You know, whatever. Still, after the heat death of the universe, it's, it's, it's not helping you. Right. So in that practical sense on computers, if you think about faster and faster and faster and faster, you'll, you'll quickly get to the point where you you don't you don't have the capacity of putting transistors within the individual atoms to actually right. expand so you're you're stuck either the 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 a nearly infinite amount of time it takes or the nearly infinite amount of of computing capacity it takes neither of which are physically possible right so so that's right. Some people say that computers will not be, you know, in you know, 30 years, computers will be 10,000 times faster. But at, at some point, that's going to stop. Mm -hmm. um, it simply can't continue forever. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. Uh, but e either way, it ain't helping you with the traveling salesman. Right. And is this issue of the difficulty of more complications to unravel things? This is the basis for what we call cryptography, right? The, right. the so, codes and the passwords and things that make it impossible for somebody to hack in with the brute force calculations, right? Right. So, 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 right. So, all of cryptography, in other words, all the, the passwords are now based on this following counterintuitive idea. I mean, it's extremely counterintuitive, but, and I, I don't know if any physicist ever really thought about it, you know, from the physics point of view. And the, the counterintuitive idea is if I give you two numbers and I ask you to multiply them, you can do that with ease. Okay. As big as the numbers are, you know how to do it and you're going to do it. You know, it depends how big this number is, depends how big this number is, but you know how to do it with ease. In contrast, if I give you a number and I tell you this number is the product, the multiplication of two numbers, and I ask you, tell me, what are the, what, what are the two numbers? In other words, somehow divide, find the factors, okay? That is a very hard problem, okay? And it demands a lot of work to do that. And mm -hmm. again, for small numbers, if I give you 15, you'll say, oh, that's three times 15, three times five, no problem. And, uh, you know, uh, 28, and you say, oh, that's four times seven, no problem. Yeah. But if I give you numbers in the, in the hundreds of bits, it's practically impossible. Yeah, yeah. And that's, again, sort of the technical uh, phrase of prime number factorization, where you take a number and you're trying to look at the prime numbers that factor into it. It sounds easy, uh, but it becomes incredibly difficult very fast. And there are open questions about, you know, prime numbers and, you know, is there a biggest one or, you know, how do you, how do you find the one that's the closest to the particular, you know, there are lots of problems that are practically insoluble because the computational requirements are so, so immense. And, 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 and it's, it's a shocking thing. Why should one process be easy and the inverse process the, the process that undoes it should be mm -hmm. hard you know just in terms of you know we, we think of physics and physics everything is one one way is doable and the other way is doable you know the laws of physics are essentially mm -hmm. convertible and yet th this is not true so mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. just a, one more thing we were talking about ways of solving the traveling salesman problem so we saw that faster computers are not going to help you and a lot of people say, you know what, um, 
I have on my laptop, it says duo processors, you know, and I'm going to get many processors to do it, or I'm going to use fancy language now. I'm going to upload it to the cloud and let uh, everyone download part of the problem and let, you know, we'll solve this problem quickly. I'll get 10,000 people to, to solve this problem. And again, that's true, but again, Taking 10 to the 142 centuries and dividing by 10,000 leaves you 10 to the 138 centuries, which doesn't really solve the problem. I just want to just just from the you know you you always bring in physics and, and complexity. Just from the physics point of view, physicists tell us that the universe, not Earth, the universe consists of something like 10 to the 80 particles. Okay. I have no idea how they calculated this. I'm not even sure it's correct, but you know, I can't say if it's too high or too low. Okay. What this tells us is if that every single particle in the universe was working on this traveling salesman problem. Okay. So this is a panpsychism. You know, mm -hmm. Every single particle in the universe is conscious computer working just on this problem. It would still take trillions and trillions of centuries to solve this problem. So it's not that, it, oh, our computers are not strong enough. It's not that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the universe is not strong enough to let us solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The universe is simply not big enough to give us an exact answer to this problem with just 100 cities. Yeah. So that's a shocking thing. Yeah. So it's, it's in theory, it's solvable, but not in a finite or not in a reasonable amount of time or with a reasonable amount of available computing capacity. It's simply Im impossible in that sense, um, right. although it's theoretically possible. Right. And there are two other possible, you know, ways of solving this. And again, okay. So one of them is quantum computers. People say, oh, yeah, but maybe quantum computers can do that. And I wrote a book on quantum computers. Great book, advertisement, uh, shameless advertisement. Um, and no, it's not going to help you that much. Quantum computers can do many things. In particular, it can factor large numbers in a short amount of time. Okay, and maybe the NSA has a quantum computer in their basement so that they can read all the hidden communications. Um, so they have that. But a problem like the traveling salesman problem, they cannot solve in a reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. Also, trillions of centuries. Mm -hmm. And one fourth way of solving it is maybe there's a better algorithm than just trying every single possible route. That just is too much. Maybe there's a better algorithm. And there's been a search for these better algorithms for 70 years, almost. Yeah. You know, and um, no one's been able to find it. And mm -hmm. it's been shown that it's very hard to believe such an algorithm exists. Yeah. And that's that's interesting because that I know there's the there's the I guess the clay prize in mathematics. You could that's you could earn a million dollars if you could solve that problem and say, oh, for all of this special class of difficult problems, I found a shortcut or. For all this difficult problems, I can tell you there is no shortcut. no shortcut. So it's either P is equal to NP or P is not equal to NP. Either way, either way you solve it, you get a million dollars and uh, I will stand up and clap for, for you. Yeah. Well, and if it was you, you could, you know. <laughs> so that's, uh, thank you, Nelson. This is, a, this is a journey down a road of complexity that is, is mind-boggling and it's, and it's hard to kind of, uh, you know, get a sense of. But again, as a, you do a great job of just sort of explaining something in a way that everybody can understand. And then it becomes mind-boggling to realize the implications. It just, you know, we can't go there. There are problems we can't solve. So when people say, oh, if I knew what the position of every particle in the universe was, and I know the laws of physics, I could, I could perfectly predict the future. Yeah, but you, the universe is too small in the following sense. The universe is too small for us to be able to do that. Uh, you know, the traveling salesman problem, you know, that's not going to make you a rich person. But if you if you were able to do this for the 
you know, the lottery numbers. That's probably yeah. the quickest thing you can make a billion dollars. But, you know, and, and there you don't even have to look at the particles in the universe. You have to look at the particles in the box where the lottery balls are bouncing around. Mm -hmm. If I could yeah. just know where every one of those particles are and whatever. And even if I did know them, I yeah. could, it wouldn't help. Yeah. And then another caveat is, um, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but another problem is that some of those physical processes in that box are what's known as chaotic processes that, that there, there is no formula to be able to tell you what the, what the outcome is going to be over a period of time, because it's, it's a chaotic process that has, um, you know, statistical possibilities that, you know, that are impossible to exactly. determine. So, so anybody who's taken high school physics knows that Newton gave us a formula of how two objects are attracted to each other, right? Um, and, uh, and mass one times mass two divided by R squared, the distance mm -hmm. squared, right? Every, it's simple. Now ask yourself the simple question. What about three particles? Mm -hmm. Let's say I have three particles and I'd like to know what the relationship is between these three particles. And I'm not, this is not an abstract question. Okay. Here's a pen. Here's my body. Here's the planet Earth. I'd like to know what the relationship is between these three things. Okay. And it turns out, you know, you might say, oh, well, I only took high school physics. I don't know, you know, that advanced stuff. You know, if I would have taken college physics, I would have known it. And the answer is no, <laughs> they don't know it in college physics. This is called the three body problem. They don't know it in college physics. They don't know it in graduate school physics. It's an unknown answer. Um, and just to give you another example of a three body problem that's very, very interesting is look at the sun, look at the earth and look at the moon. Okay, those are three bodies, and they're all tugging at each other um, very, very gently, gently, yeah. and they're turning around. Now, uh, so, so, you know, when you're looking at it, and you're looking at the, at the moon, I'm sorry, and you're looking at the earth, you could say, you know what, the sun is so much larger than the moon, I might as well ignore the moon, and just mm -hmm. think of it as a two-body problem. And... Mm -hmm. You can do that, and you can calculate how long it takes for the Earth to go around the, 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 the sun, and you get, you know, you can look it up in Google. They have the answer mm -hmm. to seven digits, you know. Yeah, yeah. But now you ask yourself the following question. Okay, but I want to know how long does it take for the moon to go around the Earth, okay? But I have two things pulling on the moon. I have the Earth, and I have the sun. So it turns out that it's a chaotic system <laughs> and it's not you if you look it up you'll see it says on average mm -hmm. it takes the moon to go around the earth so that's called a, a, a lunar month 29.5 days okay but more or less <laughs> more or less well what do you mean more or less we've been looking at this for 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 five thousand years we know about the moon why, why can't we give an exact you know amount and the answer is there is no exact amount and you cannot calculate it exactly yeah. it's it's a chaotic system so let me let me ask you a question um is the three-body problem like the traveling salesman problem it just got really complicated or is it not soluble? Okay, so I got to tell you a cute story. So, and we'll get, if I don't, if I sidetrack, catch me on. So I was um, talking to my professor, my thesis advisor, and I told him it's a very interesting thing that there are some differential equations which describe the motion of certain particles. And and we have no idea, and, 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 how the particles are moving and we have no idea how to solve these differential equations mm -hmm. in other words we have no way of, of figuring out how, to, how it works and yet the particles know what to do in other words we don't know we don't have the brain power to figure out what the particles should do but the particles know what to do and so my thesis advisor said something so brilliant he said 
He says, well, that's what science is about. Science is not about calculating because they're much better at calculating. They know what to do. Science is about understanding. Mm -hmm. And that's what our brains are for. Our brains are for understanding, you know, why the particle goes Mm -hmm. here or the particle goes there. And that's what we can do and not necessarily calculate. Okay. So it's a little bit different than the traveling salesman and Wall Street and the weather because we don't even have formulas. Now, there are infinite formulas, but it's hard to even understand what an infinite formula is, whatever. But we don't have a finite method of even solving these three mm-hmm. body problems. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's very interesting. So in, in some sense, they're, they're more harder than the traveling salesman. It's very interesting. You have... If the universe had no particles in it whatsoever, we'd be able to solve it. You know, there's no change. There's no, there's no movement. If it had one particle, we'd be able to figure out where that particle is. We look where it is now. We look at it as later. We'll figure it out. If it had two particles, thank you, Mr. Newton. We know how to solve that. Okay. But the universe has 10 to the 80 particles, not three, mm-hmm. four, five, 10 to the 80 particles. So, we to get exact solutions to things is nearly impossible now physicists are smart people and what they do is they make idealized things mm-hmm. ideal gas laws mm-hmm. ideal, yep. right idealized gas laws. and we don't look at the the sun as some you know 10 to the 10 um different particles bouncing around we look at the sun and we look at the center of the sun and we say this that's that's what we're looking at and that's you know we idealize things mm-hmm. by doing mm-hmm. that that's the only way we can make progress in in predictions but you can't take away from us from that the fact that the true nature of the universe is way beyond us mm-hmm. Yes. It is way, way beyond us. Yeah, and, um, and that's uh, that's a that's a rather uh, can be humbling, yeah, and disheartening if you if you think, well, like you know, if I only had the all the data, I could solve it. It's not it's not possible, and even with a three body problem, it's not possible. So we have these limits, as you point out, the limits to our capacities to uh, to do those things, um, and it is it is uh, it's humbling. I don't see it as depressing. I mean, it would be depressing if we understood everything in the universe. And, and, you know, that would be somewhat like, you know, if you're ever stuck in some place and you you have nothing to read, you don't have a book behind, you know, you Mm -hmm. don't have a book. So you you start reading the toothpaste and, you know, ingredients and say, you know, what's really in here? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because you're bored out of your mind. What this shows you is we'll never be bored out of our mind. (laughs) <laughs> right. So it's an it's an infinite process, ultimately, of trying to get better at understanding the things that we don't understand. Right. right. Yeah. And okay. infinite, right. It's an infinite process. It'll never end. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So I want to take a, a change over to another area that you've worked on extensively and, and that I really love. And that's the area of, of kind of the paradoxical findings um, that, uh, to my mind, sit at the heart of logical systems. It's kind of this, this, this big issue. And, um, uh, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit different, uh, maybe type of complexity or insolvability kind of issue, but, uh, it's very, very interesting. And I wonder if you could, you know, introduce that concept maybe with a, with a, with a paradox that seems simple, we can understand it. And then let's talk about what the implications of that, uh, of that paradox are. Okay. So, um, this paradox goes back to about 2,500 years. So it's not, it's not me. And it it goes back, it's something called the liar paradox. And it goes back to somebody named Epimenides who lived on Crete, which is an island off Greece. And he didn't like his neighbors. So he's, you know, he's, he was a curmudgeon of an old man. And he used to, you know, stick his head out of the window and scream out, get the hell out of my driveway. You know, um, he was, he didn't like his neighbors. And so he said in some poem, he said, all Cretans are liars. The problem with that is he was a Cretan and his sentence or his declaration goes on his, on him also. And on what comes out of his mouth, 
And so he's talking not only about all Cretans, but he's talking about this sentence that's coming out of his mouth. And it's a lie that all Cretans are liars. Okay. Now, there's a much more modern version of that. And it goes, you know, just the English or any language, but the English language discusses not only things in the universe, the weather is pretty, this is a pleasant shack, um, there are the books behind me are, are, are there, whatever, but it can talk about language. So you mm -hmm. can say something like this, um, um, uh, the, 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 the wording in the Declaration of Independence is a very I interesting wording. Okay, so that's a sentence about English. Okay. It makes sense. It makes sense. And it's, right? and it's true. <laughs> and it's true. And so, um, you know, or if you're stuck in a room, you'll start saying, you know, the wording and the ingredients of the toothpaste bar uh, is uh, the toothpaste. The thing is very interesting. Um, also, but not only can language talk about language, but language can talk about itself. Mm -hmm. So you can say things like this. Um, this sentence has five words. It's a five-word sentence that talks about itself, and it's saying something true. Okay. You could also say this sentence has seven words. That's a that's an English sentence that's false, but it's about itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then you can go even further, and you can deny itself, and you can say this sentence is false. And it turns out this sentence is false if it's true then what it says is it's false. And if it's false, what it says is it's false that this sentence is false, that makes it true. And you get into a conundrum. So is it true or false? And there are ways of getting around it and there are ways of just ignoring it. You know, like you say, look, I'm not an English professor. I don't care if this sentence is true or false or things like that. Or you can say things like this, you know, many sentences that come out of my mouth are not true or false. Like, What's for supper tonight? That's a perfectly legitimate English sentence, and it's it's on my mind, but it doesn't have a true or false value. Or um, go directly to jail. So that's a command, and it doesn't have a, a problem. But the main point is, because language has the ability to talk about itself and to negate itself, you get these complexities. You get these, and I shouldn't use the word complexities. You get these problems. And what was discovered or what was, you know, done, this idea of things referring to themselves and you getting problems with it is something that's been going on for the past 100, 150 years. And you get a lot of very interesting results. Mm -hmm. um, so... Most of it goes back to a guy named George Cantor, who was a German in the 1880s. And what he found was, you know what? Numbers can talk about themselves also. In other words, you can have numbers or elements of sets um, referring to elements of sets. And what you get is that set theory is self-referential. Right. And it can negate itself and you get... Um, different sizes. He was able to get different sizes. Yeah, and the the simple question is, okay, the set of all sets, right? right. That's the big one. We want the right. set of all sets. Right. Is the set of all sets a does it contain of itself? itself? Right. Yeah. Does it contain itself? Right. And you start losing your mind when you think of these things, but. Um, <clears throat> and by the way, Cantor did end up in a right, sanitarium, as I understand it. He was, right. It was a very difficult problem that he couldn't really uh, solve. Yeah. So, right. And, but at the end, he did solve it, and he solved it in a beautiful way. And he, he, he sh taught us how to think in a very real sense. Okay. Um, and from him went on, uh, Bertrand Russell, you know, dealt with these issues and he made a very interesting paradox called the Barber Paradox. And he also dealt with sets and, and not only sizes of sets, but elements of sets. They, 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 they worked on these ideas from Cantor. And then uh, the most brilliant logician since Aristotle named Kurt Gödel, he said, not only can sets talk about themselves, not only can language talk about themselves, but mathematics can talk about themselves themselves. And you can formulate in English, I'm sorry, in mathematics, I'm sorry, in, ma in English, you can formulate this sentence is false. 
in mathematics, you can formulate this sentence is unprovable. Okay, and we go through the same thing. If it's provable, well, then it says it's unprovable. So how could you prove something that's unprovable? There must be something wrong with your system. Right, and I just want to pause there for a second because that's, that's a very simple sentence. Uh, you know, this, this, this is unprovable. You know, this, this proof is unprovable. Or this statement no, no, this, is unprovable. This statement yeah, this statement is unprovable. unprovable. It's, it's, it's very simple. But Gödel found that this applied to what, what we would have thought as the perfect rational system of logic, logical statements, logical pr principles. And, right? and arithmetic. Which arithmetic is, as, which a, as a part of yeah. in third grade yeah. yeah and he showed no you know yes everything in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade seems simple but there are statements in arithmetic that use plus and minus and times and exponentiation that give you statements that are true but unprovable and and girdle was just the beginning of the beginning of the story because what we went on to show is that the vast majority of statements in arithmetic are unprovable. And it's not just this particular sentence. There are many, many, many sentences in arithmetic that are true but unprovable. And in fact, the power of proof, proof is very, very limited in, yeah. in, in some sense. This was very disappointing to find out when I was in college studying mathematics. Right. And even mathematics very has difficult. not falsehoods, but proofs. By the way, you might say, why didn't he just say, why didn't he just formulate the sentence, this sentence is false? And he, he kind of did it, but somebody else named Tarski did it also. And basically, that's a little bit less interesting because... Um, you know, either 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 the system that you're dealing with is true or false, and if it's true, then this this statement is not true. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The, but the, the more interesting version is is Gödel's version, namely, this sentence is unprovable, uh, yeah. which is which is a just an amazing statement. But and yeah, sorry, I was going to extend that a little bit because there now there's the the discussion amongst physicists and mathematicians about, you know, the universe and the laws of physics are mathematical, you know, so we describe the world in mathematical terms, arithmetical and, and other forms of mathematics. And um, so this principle of un, the unprovability of many statements also implicates physics, physics. correct? Right, right. So not only what we spoke about 10 minutes ago that, you know, physics doesn't have equations for every single phenomenon, but even things that they do have nice, sweet equations. Okay. Um, the math is going to be sometimes too complicated to answer. Now yeah. that doesn't take away from physics and it doesn't take away from math. There's a tremendous amount mm -hmm. of, you know, interactions between math and physics, and they're both pushing each other to, you know, new things. And string theory is basically a mathematical theory, whatever. Mm -hmm. I was just saying, if, mathemati if um, mathematics is at the base of physics, then eventually you're going to come to unsolvable things in physics also. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some some of us who know very little about physics think that quantum mechanics poses some of those unsolvable mysteries right. of you right. know um, that's a different subject, but it's no, it's, it's not. Uh, it's yeah. not a different subject actually. It's 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 related, but I want to get to it in a second. So so Gödel talked about and he showed mathematics uh, is is uh, self-referential and therefore somewhat limited, and then living near Gödel. At the same time, in a little city named Princeton, New Jersey, was a man named Alan Turing, who was an Englishman who came to Princeton to study under a guy named Alonzo Church. And, and this is in the 1930s. So this is before his work on the imitation game, which is a good mm -hmm. movie, strongly recommended. Mm -hmm. And what Turing did was he defined 
a computer. He said, well, you know, let's give a formal definition of what we mean by a computer. And he showed computers can talk about themselves also. Right. right? And we know computers can talk about themselves because that's what an operating system is. An operating right. system is a computer program that deals with computer programs, which is yeah. exactly what you want. Yeah. Okay. And he showed that there's some limitations to computers also. And this is a famous thing called the halting problem that no computer can tell if another computer is an infinite loop or not. Right. And so again, it's the same idea over and over and over yeah, again yeah. To, to get that. I now love the, uh, in the imitation game, uh, you, I'm sure you remember that scene where uh, Alan Turing is is looking at the Enigma machine with the dials spinning and the dials spinning, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. I thought that was such a beautiful image of the halting problem because he didn't know. Now, in that case, they figured a way around it, and they managed to solve the Enigma and get a happy ending. But that's that one scene was uh, an epitome of, okay, we just don't know if this program is going to end up in an inf infinite loop or not. It's just, we just don't know before we run the program and see. Okay. Can, can I tell you what, what I got out of that movie, <clears throat> which I, I mean, it's a profound thought. So one of the central ideas of that movie is that um, they were able to break the enigma and they were able to tell when certain sh communications to U-boats were going to blow up certain ships. And, and just because they had that knowledge, they didn't want to use that knowledge yeah. and tell that ship, hey, there's a U-boat on your way. Get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they didn't do that is because then the Germans would have figured out, hey, they broke our enigma. We have to use something else. Mm -hmm. okay? And so they said, oh, here's a message that says a U-boat is going to blow up that ship and we are not going to tell that ship to go away and 5,000, 3,000 people on that ship are going to get killed and that's just something that we're going to have to do, quote unquote, for the better good. Yeah. And I read about it, yeah. but yeah. I, I remember talking to somebody and I said, you know, like how could, and obviously Alan Turing wasn't making those decisions. Those decisions went up straight to Churchill. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. uh, and I realized then that I never want to go into politics, <laughs> which, which basically is about making decisions for the better good of everyone at the expense of individuals. I mean, yeah. that's what politicians do. And it's another kind of insoluble problem when you're right. trying to balance values that are different and make decisions right. on that basis. The other anecdote from the, some of the war about a cryptographic solution to communications was the United States in the Pacific utilized Navajo uh, uh, Native Americans for their communication between ship to ship communication and across the theater because nobody in, um, in right. the nobody Axis powers knew what they were talking about. I just that was that was another interesting thing. It's a fascinating thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, now, so, so, so we, go ahead. Back to the list of things that are self-referential. Um, so we have Turing showing that computers are self-referential and therefore limited. And I'd like to get to quantum mechanics because hmm. anybody who's ever thought about quantum mechanics, and I'm going to put this in the most, um, knows that uh, question, what is light? Is light a particle? or is light a, a wave? Yeah. And, and the answer is, well, it depends how you measure it. Mm -hmm. And that is the most unsatisfying answer ever in all of science. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it really, it, it reveals the, 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 you know, the uncomfortableness of quantum mechanics. In other words, if you do an experiment in which you're expecting a wave, you're going to get a wave. And if you're doing an experiment, which expects a particle, then you're going to get a particle. And those answers are on, that's not good. Well, what that shows is that the experiment is part of the system that you're measuring. Okay. So usually you think, oh, here's a system and I want to, you know, poke it and figure out what's going on in this system. And here it's saying, no, 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 this is the system, but you have to include the experiment into the system. 
Mm-hmm. And that has a feel of self-reference to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's just, called, yeah, the observer, the observer problem in quantum mechanics is you can't get away from the fact that the observer, the observer is a part of the system. Yeah. Right. And so that's, a, that's yeah. again, within the same realm, that self, self-reference. Yeah. And another, another example of self-reference is we sort of extended up one more uh, level, and that is, you know, the human mind which everybody's trying to figure out, but it's right. obviously self-referential. We talk about ourselves all the time. All the time. And we're thinking about ourselves all the time. And I mean, and if you read Freud, you, I mean, basically a hell of a lot of psychoanalysis is discussing Freud's life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because he thought this and he thought that and, and, and he made theories based on that. And, um, right, the, the mind is self-referential, and uh, just just to give you instead of instead of uh, having an English sentence saying um, this sentence is false, how about having the following thought: I am wrong now. <laughs> Close your eyes and try to have that that thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, this mm-hmm. thought is wrong. Well, I could say, "Oops, I was wrong, but now I'm right." right. So, but it's uh, it's a workaround. Um, so. These are uh, this amazing set of difficulties arising in in mathematical problems and logical systems that um, really create puzzles. And so, are are these these and these aren't ever we're never going to solve them. We can work around them, but never going to solve them. They're they're a permanent fixture of the universe of math, of physics, of our human minds, right? Uh, of reason itself. In other words, yeah. it's built into reason itself. And all of math, science, um, logic is based on this. So it's, what does that say about whether, you know, h- how do you answer the question, is the universe comprehensible? Can we can we understand it? We, we, we can understand large parts of, oh no, we can understand parts of it. I don't want to use the word large. Um, and we're making progress and we should never stop, you know, trying to make progress. But, but no, there's something about it in which we will never know everything. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's an interesting thought. So Nassan, you don't seem to be particularly perturbed by that thought. I mean, you've, no, you've been in this field, you're pursuing it. these questions. It's, you don't seem per- perturbed that the, this, this is an, an insoluble set of problems. We will never, you know, we will never answer all. It's an infinite process. So you're comfortable with that, right? It, right it's like when you meet somebody new and they're interesting, okay, and, uh, and you, you know, you want to know everything about them and you ask them a million questions and they have mysterious backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as opposed to that, you know, when you meet somebody that, you know, for 50 years and you're, you're bored out of your mind from them. So I look at the universe as, uh, as a first date, <laughs> a perpetual first date. You'll never know everything about them. Yeah. Um, no, not perturbed about it at all. Yeah. So it's a curiosity that is fun. I mean, it's a fun, right. fun. T- so I wanted to ask that change, change mode just a little bit, um, uh, ask about your, religious tradition and and how that tradition may have uh, changed over time as you you know as you learn more about math and science if there's been a change or do you do you feel that your religious tradition is perfectly compatible with with these questions or has it evolved um so just speak to that for a minute um, well, so I was born in a religious family and i I lived twelve blocks away from where I was you know, grew up. So, um, I haven't traveled that far. <laughs> no. So, uh, you know, I've been to different countries, but I haven't, in, in that sense, I haven't traveled far, but so I come from a Jewish background and I can't say that it's that, that the science has changed me or my religion, but I have noticed some of the common themes that the religion has. Okay. And Judaism is somewhat based on, on, on the Bible. And the first story of the Bible after creation is the story of, of Adam and Eve and the snake. 
And if you think about what the snake tells Eve, he says, well, God says to Eve, Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree of knowledge. And Eve says, no, 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 no. He's trying to hold you back, you know, mm. eat from the, eat from the apple and then you'll have knowledge. You know, you'll be as God, you shall be as gods. In other words, so even from the beginning of the Bible, there's this, this, this separation between what human beings can do and the knowledge that you have um, and, and the knowledge that's out there in some sense God has. Mm -hmm. so, so such themes do play a role in, 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 in religion. Yeah, and, and I think uh, uh, one might say, well, you know, we're sort of, we're, we're trying to eat from the tree of the knowledge of, of knowledge and we're finding that you know there are things that we can never understand right never will reach and right. so that's a, that's uh comfortable with your um you know with your belief in god an infinite creator god of some sort that you know that uh, uh that we have these puzzles that we never we can never reach we can never solve them with our human right. rational finite minds Right. And another place where this is very prominent is the book of Job. So the book mm -hmm. of Job is 35 chapters of complaining about um, why the just suffer or why the good suffer. Mm -hmm. And and there, of course, there's no answer to why the, the good suffer. There's absolutely, you know, nobody's ever given a good answer to that question. Um you know, even if you hold, if you even if you believe the universe is a random thing and not created by God, you still don't have a good answer to why the just right. suffer. I mean, right? It's a horrifying, it's a horrifying thing. Yeah. And at the end of the book of Job, God comes and he gives an answer. Okay, but if you read the answer, it's not really an answer. He comes out of the whirlwind and he basically says, "You, you, Job, you don't have the right." to ask me these questions because you don't know this and you don't know this and you don't know how the animals do this and you don't know the, how the the sun goes over here and you don't know the firmament of the universe and you don't know what the world stands on. In other words, he's giving God, he, uh, God is giving man, um, he's taking away man's right to judge him because man is ignorant of the universe. Of the and you have shown you have shown that there are things that we will always be ignorant of. Exactly, and right. Yeah. So, so one shouldn't battle God in yeah. that sense. Uh, by the way, that's yeah. Job Job responds to God, and basically he says as follows: He says, "I shall put my hand over my mouth. I won't speak anymore." In other words, not that I don't have questions. Everybody has questions, and again, the question of uh, the just suffering that no one's ever going to give you an answer to that i have questions i always will have questions but i'm going to put my hand over my mouth because i don't have the right to ask such questions or mm -hmm. to ask them in an accusatory fashion but that's you, know, you always have questions yeah yeah oh, that's interesting um i have one last question speaking of questions um uh do you have an experience in in your life that you felt was, you know, unexplainable or, or even mystical, perhaps something that shaped the trajectory of, of your life. So, so I've had emotional experiences. That's, you know, you, uh, you know, so I recently lost my father and that was, uh, terribly, he was ill for a while and that was terribly emotional. Um, about five years ago, I lost my older brother. And it was also extremely heartbreaking. In some sense. And of course, I've had positive experiences. I remember um, literally carrying my, my oldest child as a baby from the mm -hmm. hospital, taking her home and bringing her to my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just broke down crying. It was such mm -hmm. a powerful experience. I mean, here you are. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your parents, you owe so much to your parents and, you know, they raised you and here you're bringing your child to hmm. uh, whatever. There are, there are no words to describe that experience. Mm -hmm. Period. Well, uh, I, I have three more children and I, and I did the same thing. And again, those were powerful, positive experiences. 
but those are emotional experiences. Uh, mystical experiences, no. I can't say I've ever had a mystical experience, but I want to tell you an interesting thing. I had this conversation with a professor who took a logic course. In, he was a philosophy professor who took a, a logic course uh, and a set theory course in college. And he, he was an atheist in, in every sense of the word, but he said, he said there were all these different levels of infinity and exactness and perfect you know, nature of mathematics, he said he really had, it, it, for him, such an experience was a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. Just at some sense, you know, seeing everything perfectly, it was just a, a, a mystical experience for him. And I thought that was uh, very interesting that, you know, you know, even someone like him could say that. I, I, I want to read a quote from Winston Churchill, who we mentioned before, who's capable of, of making decisions about life and death. Hmm. He says as follows, this is, I'm reading from my book. I had a feeling once about mathematics that I saw it all. Depth beyond depth was revealed to me. The abyss and the abyss I saw as one might see the transit of Venus or even the Lord's Mayor's show. I don't even know what that means. Uh, a quantity passing through infinity and changing its sign from plus to minus. I saw exactly how it happened and why the trig, trig of Churchill writes very well was inevitable and how one step involved all the others. It was like politics, but it was after dinner and I let it go. <laughs> so you can tell i mean churchill i don't know if he was good in math or not good in math he definitely wasn't interested in math but at some point he he saw it he understood it and he had such a mystical experience yeah and i i i think the way you talked about your children um is it safe to say if, yeah. you, if you look for, for meaning in your life, it's not going to be in the formulas or this, it's going to be in the, the life that you're living with. Can, yeah. can I tell you one, one other story? Yeah. I know a woman, whatever, she's an editor of my book and uh, a firm atheist in, in every sense of the word, but she sometimes has dreams about numbers mm. and mm. she plays these numbers in the lottery game. And she wins. You know, she has wins. Sometimes she's off by a number. Sometimes she's not. I'm, I'm not saying whether she wins more or less, but Karen wins. And mm. I asked her once, I said, Karen, can I ask you a question? As an atheist, how do you explain this? That, you know, you're having these dreams and you're solving, you know, the lottery problem and you're, 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 you're getting it. You know, like you're winning these, you know, you, you're winning these, these lottery things. And she said to me, Nassim, I have to tell you when I'm, when I'm holding my ticket in my hand and I'm going to get the money for the, for the thing, such questions don't arise. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it's true. It's, you know, like it's, a, it's a very real, you know, answer. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I listened to some of your other podcasts and I, you know, I was thinking about how people do have mystical experiences and people don't. Mystical ex and its relationship with, with religion, people who have mystical experiences can start a religion or start a movement or, or have a movement within the religion. But in general, most people don't have mystical experiences hmm. as far as I see. And it also, in some sense, religion, in order to maintain itself, has to somehow crack down on that. Uh, Meister Eckhart, for example. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, yeah. You can't have that, everyone having a mystery. There has to be, um, you can't have everyone trying to do this, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, and that, you know, some people might say that when mystical experiences are shared and then are used to build guidelines and limits and boxes in which other people are asked to, to stay, um, you know, is an interesting question as to whether, you know, whether that's the same thing. I mean, in, you know, religions are a human institution 
in our culture, in our society, in our civilization. And so they play, religions maybe play a very different role than spiritual experiences or mystical okay. experiences do. Yeah. Great. Well, Nassim, this has been a fabulous conversation. Great. I've really, really enjoyed it. We've, we've taken a, a long journey and we've, we've uh, found ourselves comfortable with the place we're at where right. there's lots of unknowns and uncertainties and unanswerables. And you know what? It's okay. Right. <laughs> it's fun. It's interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. And you're welcome. Hold. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. Join me next time for a conversation with Mark Cohen, a neuroscientist and co-inventor of functional magnetic imaging resonance. As we discuss the structure and function in the human brain, the complexities of machine learning, and the beauty of musical polyrhythms and harmonics. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Adventures, PlankSip, and Talk of Today, and join the conversation on our social media outlets or at spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.